Hope you enjoyed part one of the McShank Podcast 2021 Top 10 list. Coming at you now, here is part two. Moving on <laughs> to my number five. West Side Story. Ah, West Side Story. Ah, filmmaking. Ah, Ryan. yes. Filmmaking. Cinema. Take a deep breath in, Ryan, God. because filmmaking is all around us right now. It's back, baby. West Side Story is at a vaunted place on my list for one specific reason. It is sublime filmmaking craft. Pure and simple, deep and true. It's going in. It's one of those does this need to exist movies, and I think the answer is a full-throated yes, sir, it does. So I saw some commentary from my on-again, off-again friend, David Ehrlich from IndieWire, <laughs> who said that... What, well, what is this? Wait, what? <laughs> I know, I know. He, he definitely has uh, takes, we're, we're ex, let's say. We're, you know, we're ex-lovers one moment, and Fair. we were eye-to-eye the next. Yeah, you know? okay. So All right. He had a take on this that I thought was interesting, and he said, while this is Spielberg's first out-and-out musical he's ever made, that all of his movies kind of are musicals in their own way, just the way that he blends the best music from the best composers and collaborators with his blocking on screen and his mastery over the camera. I mean, shit, they might as well be musicals. The opening, the fucking Raiders, you know, just some of the intricacy of his roller coastery type movies. I think musical is not a too, not too far of a stretch for him in this role. It's all rhythmic stuff. And this plays right into his wheelhouse. Amazingly. I, think Spielberg even one-ups the original film here. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it's more dynamic. I think the acting is better. I think almost all of it is better. And maybe it's unfair to compare it through the lens of cinema six decades later or whatever, but I think he one-ups it. I love that he kind of takes the Bernstein and Sondheim music and lyrics and pushes it more into 2021 just in terms of the the violence in the movie and the implied sex in the plot, which made me really, really happy because this movie is technically distributed by Disney after inheriting it from Fox. And it's no wonder no one went to see this movie (laughs) because... Which is a shame, by the way. It is. It really is. Because because it's not that it, it, it speaks more to the fact that people just didn't know about it. I could see that if maybe, oh, it was underwhelming critically or, oh, it, you know, it didn't live up to whatever. But it's like, no, people just straight up did not know this movie existed. Like, it is it is very good. It's not on my list. I did enjoy most of it. There was some stuff I had kind of problems with. But, like, mm-hmm. but I think that, it, that that's the sadder part of it is that just, like, it was an unknown rather than, oh, people just stayed away from it for one reason or another. Like, let people make their own decisions about whether they want to go see it or not. Not yeah. just, like, artificially. Yeah. I'm not sure why Disney buried it and didn't give it much of any kind of promotional campaign. The only thing I can think of would be Ansel. That's the only well, kind of thing. But, I mean, like, I, I, he's in the trailer barely. I, like, ju- I just for, think it's because it's not a Disney movie. Like, I don't think Disney releases this movie. Yeah. It's It's too... I mean, I'm not going to say good, but it's <laughs> it's like it's a movie. Yeah, like it, it's, it, 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 it was made at a proper studio that's not Disney. It's yeah, it was made at exactly. Couldn't have said it better. But the Ansel question, you brought it up. Yeah, I think everyone around Ansel Elgort in this movie, the main supporting players, Mike Feist as Riff, Ariana DeBose as Anita. Oh yeah, Rachel Zegler as ne- playing the Natalie Wood role right. with Maria, David Alvarez as Bernardo. They are all fantastic. Yeah, and I think Ansel's pretty good. Yeah. What do you think? I agree. I think that, but uh, he actually, 
surprisingly, he surprised me more than I thought he was. His singing voice is quite good. It is very good. I, I think he does still have a presence on screen. It's tough to kind of classify it, but I don't think his acting chops are up to where, like, Ariana DeBose probably gives one of the five best performances of anybody the whole year. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, but yeah, like he, he is definitely, I feel like maybe like a notch below in terms of just the, perf- the raw performance, but he still kind of has something to him. Well, the, that's one of the main departures from the original source material that Spielberg and Tony Kushner take here. They give Tony more of a backstory that kind of imbues him with a latent menace because he's a little more dangerous. He's a little more volatile in this movie. He's got a checkered past and I think his overall stature as embodied by Elgort gives him also kind of an imposing feel because he's much taller than most people around him the entire film, especially Rachel Zegler. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks like a dad taking his girl to kindergarten. You know what I mean? But I think he's fine. I, I mean, his singing voice is good. I don't think Again, he's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the movie that, yeah, he's... He 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 he's kind of like Adam Driver in the way where you're like he has a good voice he can sing he maybe has some limitations with what he can do but he's definitely engaging and it the the it's not like he's he you know you could just be like oh I have to look away but because you do I mean he definitely commands that your eyes essentially so yeah we all know that Disney bought Fox because they want X Men that's the only reason they bought Fox that they're willing to pay billions of dollars so they can have X Men and Avengers movies that's it that's what I'll say about that but continue. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> everybody but, but knows. everyone knows that, but we don't have to repeat it right Fair now. Fair enough. All right, I'll cut it. It's depress cut. people who like movies. <laughs> so there's some formalistic touches here that I thought were quite interesting. Subtitles. There are none. And that's over extended, well, not they're not super long sequences, but there's a lot of Spanish that goes unsubtitled here. And I actually really like that touch. I think it could go either way with people. Because it's kind of a challenge, I think. I think it's Spielberg saying, and Kushner saying that, you know what, it's 2021, there is a large percentage of this country that speaks this language. And if you don't happen to speak it, if you're non-fluent, like most English-speaking people are, I think, then we're just going to leave it up to you to try to put the pieces together with all these verbal and performance cues that makes it almost something like a silent movie or something can the actors tell the story without you understanding what they're saying letter for letter? And I thought it was a bold move. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll let you get to your next point after I talk about myself again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so quick story. Cause the, I, I noticed that too. And it reminded me in high school, I was tasked with a good friend of mine to make like a short film for a rally that we were doing like an early season, early school year thing. And we called it, uh, I wrote it. It was called tennis conversations. And the twist on it was that my character, I was in it with a good friend of mine. My character only spoke French. (laughs) The other character only spoke English. And the only way you knew what the French was, was the response in English. Hmm. So if I said something in French, my friend would then, I had to write it. My friend said, well, you know, I think I like the sweatbands the most or something like that. So you can (laughs) kind of like make out what I was saying with no subtitles based on his response. And so that's kind of, again, on a much lower scale. Uh, they, we did not show it at that rally. It did not get shown. Uh, I like that though. I like it the got shown it. later on, but yeah, it did. It, 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 it was not, uh, where we thought it was going to be, but yeah, that's kind of the similar idea. Like you can, 
you don't need to you're speaking this is going to sound so stupid but you're speaking the language of film you know like <laughs> <laughs> i i meant it to as sound Clay, stupid as clayton shows himself out it was it was stupid when it popped into my mind and it was stupid no, on the way out the, the love is there right you get I, it i feel you get it. i feel the love you know like yeah you don't need to know literally what is being said because you know what you the response or the, you know you can kind of figure it out yeah yeah formalistic touch i really liked formalistic touch i didn't really like as my friend aaron resnick pointed out while we were watching it lens flares there are so many goddamn fucking lens flares in this movie that it can almost be described as lesser abrams (laughs) ouch but i mean well it gets so bad at one point i think there's a scene inside of a bar or a, a pub or a diner of some kind where there is a lens flare in all four quadrants of the screen and you can't even see a person's face. So didn't kill the movie for me, obviously, but I noticed it and I wish, and that was obviously intentional and I wish they would have dialed it down a little bit. Oh man. I'm just thinking about that. (laughs) Thinking about calling Steven Spielberg, who was JJ Abrams chief inspiration in his films. And yet calling the lens flares lesser Abrams is funny to me. <laughs> Moving on. The songs. Super eight. More like. Okay, go. Super great. Jeff's okay. song is a great song to open this movie with. It's exhilarating. It establishes the conflict between the Jets and the Sharks. And I love that they're kind of warring on a battlefield that's really just urban decay. <laughs> and all around them is the bulldozers of like societal indifference. That is a touch i think i don't remember the movie the original movie too well but i think that was something they added here it's it's way more of a kind of a uh god what's the word i'm blanking on the word um when white people move into a town oh gentrification gentrification thank you yes that's a word i can't believe i just forgot right now but there's kind of that going on in the background where their whole town is kind of being cleaned up and built up around them and they're just kind of playing these the a game with these dire stakes while this whole city around them just kind of moves on and it's kind of tragic when you look at it from that angle especially with what happens and that was kind of the more moving aspect of the movie that i think i wasn't expecting going in where it it does kind of play a number with everything they're doing seems so serious but the world around them could give a shit you know like it's all just passing them by yeah it's passing all of them by because they're all gonna have to leave eventually essentially you know like they're yeah. the 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 i can't remember who's the who who, who which group is the white group which group is this the jets is the white okay. group yeah they're basically fighting that you know the puerto ricans have kind of moved in on their territory but <laughs> each of them are just there's this lingering specter off screen of just all of these other there. Everything's going to be torn down and made into apartments or, and homes, you know, cheap homes for, for people in the city. So yeah, I mean, they're both fighting against each other, but they both each have a, something they could be fighting with, you know, together essentially. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on about West side story, but it's a masterful filmmaking exercise from one of our undisputed masters. I didn't think I was going to like it as much as I did. I kind of was like, Ugh, you know, all right, fine. But it's, I mean, a sidebar here, that is probably, gosh, is that the best Spielberg movie in a long time? I mean, he's made a shit ton of movies. 
But like, if you look at his filmography, I like Lincoln. You like Lincoln. Though. I like you it. know, like it's fine. You know, it's very. I, and I think maybe the, since Munich, maybe. But that was two thousand five. Like it was so long ago. You know, like it's like this is our British one of spies our, was good. It's fine. That's the thing. Like you, they are what you expect. Like the post. It's like it's post a bad. The post a bad movie. No. It's just very much like I don't like the post. It's like Tom, ha- but I mean, it's competently made it, it at is, the very of least. Of like course, it's yeah. you know, but there isn't, there hasn't been anything that you feel like is capital S Steven, capital S Spielberg, in a long time. So yeah, that's just my opinion on Steven Spielberg that may or may not get cut. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, only your editing hand will guide you. Da-da-da-da. Well, my number five is one that I think we're, we might disagree with a little bit. I know you were not a probably a huge fan based on your review, but it's Nightmare Alley. Oh, I like Nightmare Alley. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I didn't love it, but I, I liked it. Okay. I kind of thought, I got the sense that maybe it was like, because I think you started your review talking about how like Del Toro is kind of hit or miss for you. Oh, this is my favorite movie of his since Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, wow. Maybe I didn't read the whole review. Or maybe I, mean, I don't my, remember. Maybe it was a little ambiguous on my part, but okay. I, I, I quite like it. I got the sense maybe, well, great. Excellent. Perfect. Um, but I mean, the story of a rise and fall of a carny in the sumptuous 1930s era USA. I mean, that's really kind of the long and short of it. There's obviously way more involved, but I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm surprised that this type of story appealed to Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> it's sort of the like, first half of it definitely does. Right. True. The second half, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's practically like a documentary based on what the other things that he's made and the flourishes that he's able to put into it. But I mean, it's obviously shot beautifully. That's something that's been very consistent with both him and the stuff on my list so far, really. All-star cast, Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett, Richard Jenkins, Willem Dafoe, like just, mm-hmm. I mean, but also, I'm not going to ruin it, but probably the best ending of the entire year, it's I would think. It's I mean, a, a needle drop that's just unlike anything else. Like it does. And I, it's like, how did we not see that coming? Well, that's, that's my point. I feel like it kind of does. When you think back on at it. Least, at least I didn't see it coming. No, I think when you think back on it, you go, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. Like It's it, the only way it could have ended. No, exactly. For sure. But when you're hearing what's going on at the beginning and then it sort of mirrors what happens, you're like, oh, got it. But I think that the, the realization of what is happening, both with us and with Bradley Cooper, I think he's kind of mirroring. We're just sort of like just kind of laughing, you know, like, okay, <laughs> this makes sense. But going in without really any prior knowledge of the story or the 1947 film, it was unexpected to me, the kind of the way it unfolded. It kind of starts as this almost coming of age tale of a man finding himself in in this world of misfits and then kind of whipping you around to packed galas at hotel ballrooms and just this very noirish tale of deceit and double crosses. Um, and Bradley Cooper's character really has a, takes a journey in this movie. He plays his character as very boyish and quiet. You kind of think like, mm, this guy hasn't said hardly anything. Uh, and you have Bradley Cooper in your movie, but <laughs> he, he definitely finds his voice literally and figuratively and kind of grows into this persona that he's created, this character that he's created as it goes on. Um, but I absolutely love, love using Kate Blanchett as the femme fatale in a she noir film. She is so fucking good. So good. Like, I mean, her lipstick should be nominated for an Oscar. Like, I agree. It's, it's the best lipstick work you've seen uh, this side of I don't even know. It's great. The last time Kate Blanchett was in a movie? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sure, is the only I thing I can so. point to. Yeah. But like, I mean, the, her 
character she plays a a doctor who has let's say dirt on some famous people that could come of use to Bradley Cooper's character but pairing them together to kind of hatch this brilliant scheme and uh with Rooney Mara kind of you know remember her like <laughs> she's an actor uh coming back with a vengeance I mean she's great in this movie too the beautiful cinematography great cast it kind of it honestly kind of keeps it pretty grounded, I would think, in this kind of noirish setting. Yeah, um, but never, I, never really goes full fantastical, does it? It kind of straddles, no, straddles which, the line, right? Which is what you're saying. Like the first half, if you if it was going to go fantastical, that's the place to do it. But it doesn't really in the second. It just kind of becomes a noir film in the second half. Yeah. But I really can't wait to see it in black and white. I'm really excited. I hope that comes because it's on HBO Max now. Uh, not not the black and white one, but I think it would kind of give a uh, a richness and a texture. I think that while the color version is still very good, uh, obviously it's number five on my list. But I think there's could be some other depths to explore just in black and white, which is crazy that you can make a film and have different viewing experiences and have different meanings that come of it just by simply taking out the color from it. So um, Nightmare Alley, number five. Watch it. It's on HBO Max. Like, oh God, please. Yeah, this is the kind of film that I'm so happy gets any... It got some awards consideration, right? Yeah. yeah nominee for Best Picture. Yeah, okay. I, I completely forgot the nominees already, but I'm happy because this is the kind of movie that should, I think. Like, it's released around Oscar time, mm-hmm. you know, but deservedly so, I think. And it's got a marquee named Talent fronting it a really steady hand behind the wheel and it goes to some kind of you know more twisted and morbid places than your average oscar bait goes to and i think it should be rewarded for yeah it. i agree and it, yeah like knowing kind of where the the twists and turns of the story are uh yeah it is it is definitely kind of on its own island when it comes to other films this is about as like out there as they're really gonna get frankly <laughs> so a classy elegant piece on human sickness <laughs> Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> My number four. Go for it. Is Summer of Soul. Oh. Or. Or I didn't learn the subtitle. The Revolution will not be televised, <laughs> I think. I think you're right. I did not see this one. I This is one that I did miss. So please. Directed by Questlove of Roots fame. This is an expertly directed documentary that unveils, I think, the most essential piece of American music history since the Woodstock movie. I, I have no idea, but. I don't think it's blasphemy to say that, and the movie makes you believe why. So comparing it to Woodstock is a little leading and cheeky because, of course, the concert depicted at the center of this movie around a festival called the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969, it was often billed and marketed at the time to people who would be would-be buyers and distributors of the footage as the Black Woodstock. And... That's because it was taking place just a few hours away from in the same year from that fa- from those famous farmlands in Bethel, New York, which would host the Woodstock that we all know and is adorned by history. Woodstock 2000. Got it. <laughs> right. Exactly. The concert footage that has been unearthed and restored in this movie is just a revelation. So you got a nascent 19 year old Stevie Wonder. You got fresh out of the box, Gladys Knight and the Pips, in their prime, Sly and the Family Stone, and Nina Simone, B.B. King, some amazing groups I wasn't too familiar with, like the Fifth Dimension and the Staple Sisters, and even more. I mean, this is a soulful, like a foot-stomping 
cornucopia of talent that was kind of seen on one sticky summer day in Harlem and then just forgotten to history, overshadowed by the more marquee event that was happening in Bethel and just forgotten about. So praise of this particular movie, I think it comes down to both the craft and perspective for me. So Questlove, he splices in interviews with highlights of the concert film itself. The people he's interviewing, with one notable exception, for some, for some reason Lin-Manuel Miranda is interviewed in this movie. Everyone else, but I, I know he's good friends with Questlove or whatever, but everyone else was either actually there and performing in it or was there and experiencing it. So it's all contemporary people. It's all contemporaneous attendees. The musicians that are being interviewed are not just talking heads in the traditional sense where they're looking at the camera, they're recalling their memories. They're kind of more three-quarter profile to camera looking at footage of themselves on screen performing for the first time in 50 years. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Okay, so that is the kind of epiphanies that you get with their testimonies. Like, it's all kind of of a hazy forgotten memory where they know it existed they know they did it and for the people in attendance they know they saw something there but they couldn't really prove it until this movie happened (laughs) it's really really something to witness like the look on all their faces is just it's the history of lived experience playing out for the first time so on those merits alone it's a stunning movie but when it gets into the kind of the political an historical backdrop that this concert is happening in. It's probably happening a little, about a year on the heels of the Martin Luther King and Bobby, Bobby Kennedy assassinations. And those deaths just kind of blanket over the whole community and the promises of like the cultural progress, just like an, just an all consuming shadow, just all over it. So the film and the footage, I think, puts forward the clear like point of view that this concert is happening at the nexus of both culture and a battle cry of activism. It was a concert by black people for black people, excluding the mixed race band members of Sly and the Family Stone, which mm. does not go unremarked in the movie in kind of a funny <laughs> moment. But in its own like concise and kind of obvious way, this this concert was a revolutionary act and a huge breath of fresh air and hope for the whole community that experienced and lived through it. It's a brilliant documentary. Yeah, no, I, I've heard nothing but great things about it. It was, it was, uh, it premiered at, at virtual Sundance last year, 2021. And we didn't catch it in time to get tickets before it sold out. But everybody that I've heard just absolutely loves it. So that's yeah. definitely one. It's on Hulu now, I think, isn't it? It I'm is. Pretty sure. Yeah, I'll have to check that one yeah, out for sure. Yeah, it, it's a gather as many people as you comfortably can in the middle of a pandemic and watch yeah. kind of movie. Cool. Awesome. That's my number four. Well, my number four, I'll ask a question. Do you ever have one of those movies, and I'm sure you have, where you see it eh, maybe kind of earlier on in the year and you really enjoy it and you think, yeah, but I does it really going to have the staying power to kind of end up on the list? It couldn't really have that, could it? And then it inexplicably does. Well, that to me is Barb and Star go to Vista fucking Del Mar, man. I think your choice of the gray on your list kind of had a similar <laughs> role. It's yeah. like, is this going to be one of my favorite movies yeah. of the year? I saw it in January. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, but 
so just a little backstory of, of mine and, and really this is a journey of mine and my wife, frankly. Um, so we rented it when it was first released on Amazon. Loved it so much that we watched it again before our 48 hour viewing period was up. We rented it again when the price went down. We bought it when it came out on Blu-ray. When theaters opened up, we saw a movie party version of it at the Alamo Draft House, complete with encouraged sing-alongs, uh, props, fancy drinks. Like mm. they had the actual, like they recreated the, uh, the, the sunken treasure drink. We showed it to my in-laws over Christmas and eventually it became the basis for our annual Christmas card with me playing star and my wife playing Barb. So that's kind of what you're up against with this one. I mean, just, I mean, really just a zany madcap Austin Powers inspired romp through middle age with Kristen Wiig, Annie Mumolo, Kristen Wiig again, and oddly enough, Jamie Dornan, who should be way more out of place than I think he really ends up being. Um, but the, I'm the plot is nonsensical. Like it's a, it doesn't even, that's not what you go into it for. There's something about killer mosquitoes and revenge and killing people in this small little Island town. It does this, not matter. doesn't matter at all. And I, I think quite charming to be honest. Absolutely. But I think that there are just, there are the, the main feature of it is just, there are so many laughs packed into 90 some odd minutes that it's kind of difficult to get them all in the first pass, but an unexpected kind of, side quest of it is that there are really multiple Broadway level musical numbers included in this film too, including a Jamie Dornan solo song where he utters the phrase, I'm going up a palm tree, like a cat up a palm tree who's decided to go up a palm tree. <laughs> like that's the sort of stuff you're dealing with, with this particular movie. And I think it, we've talked about it before. And I think this movie is also a perfect example of some comedies just kind of working almost kind of despite themselves. Uh, the best comedies sometimes just sort of happen without trying or they think they're doing something and what hap- the, the thing that makes it to screen is something totally different and really funny and attempts to kind of like harness that maybe in subsequent sequels. It just doesn't really have the same flair. It's more fun when it feels improvised or more like they stumbled upon it rather than trying to recreate it. I'm thinking more just about Anchorman too. <laughs> Pretty much, like, yeah. I mean, really, like, or I mean, any comic, Caddyshack too. These types of things where these these funny moments and bits happen organically, but then when you try to recreate them in a script, like directly correlating the two, it just doesn't really work. So, but this is not really, really in the quality class, I would say, of some of the films that are going to be before it or after it, even on 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 this particular list. But Ryan, let me stop you. There. Go ahead, please. Because that's bullshit. It is. Because this movie is very good. It is. And it's, I loved this movie. It, I, it didn't make it onto my list. Mm-hmm. But I cannot tell you how much I appreciated the irreverence mm-hmm. in this movie. They really went for it. Like, they really just were like, just be damned. You know, let's just kind of, whatever we think is funny, put it in there. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's a comedy vision consistently and confidently executed. And it throws a lot of shit at you. Mm-hmm. But it all just makes sense in this world. Yeah. It's all of a single piece for how crazy it is. And this is just a flat out good film. Yeah. It's unexpectedly good. Like you can kind of go into it being like, oh, the comedy could be good. But at the end of it, you're like, wow, that was really sweet and kind of nice and everything. Uh, we didn't even talk about Damon Wayans Jr. Darley, <laughs> Darley Bunkle is his name. 
It's private. The shittiest spy in history. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a garage sale later. <laughs> it just tells him everything yeah. about him at face value. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All was, right. Well, I retract that part about it being quality. Yes, it is. I think I'm falling quality. into the falling into like the Academy Award version of it of a, of a list. But it's like you know what? It's my list, and this film had a massive impact on mine and my wife's life. In a just world, this would be nominated for yes, best picture more sure. than Don't Look Up. Fair enough. <laughs> it's not going to be on the list. That's for sure. <laughs> so my number four is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. And if you get a chance to see it, if you get a chance to to check it out, it's on Hulu or you can rent it. Like it's, you'll have a lot of fun with it. I I have a I have, I don't know why I have this thing where it's just like I don't I don't know if the things that I think are funny other people are going to find funny. So I kind of almost have to couch it in a way when I'm showing it or t- telling somebody about it, like. It's funny, and it's like, oh, it's kind of like Austin Powers. It's like zany, and you do all this stuff, and it's like, no, this movie's pretty fucking funny to everybody, I think. I think it is. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right, we're getting down to it. Barb and Star could not agree more. So my top three is a weird grab bag, Ryan. As per usual. It's a shakeup of experiences that really could have fallen any which way depending on how I woke up this morning. Interesting. <laughs> I finalized so you my did t- finalize it. I yeah. finalized my top three over like a croissant and coffee <laughs> at nine AM. <laughs> so yeah, this is where this is the point at my where my list gets a little strange. Okay. And it's not strange for we- weird reasons. Uh-huh. It's just different. So my number three, okay Ryan, this is where I make McShank podcast history. Okay. Whoa. So whether this is fully accepted in the moment or tarred with the feathers of blasphemy. I think I know what you're going to say. A la our dear friend and fallen podcaster, Michael Baroga. Rest in peace. So whether that happens is yet to be seen. I think I know what it is. And I think I I agree with you. Yeah. If I must go down in a bloody pulp, I will go down guns blazing. Can I guess? Or no, maybe I shouldn't. My number three is something that is technically television. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think it... Okay, go on. Okay. So as TV gets richer and richer, the stories are getting bolder and bolder. Okay. Right? I think all roads have been pointing to this moment for the last several years now where one of us did this. Yeah. And I will be goddamned if I'm going to leave the breathtaking, aching cinema of Barry Jenkins, the Underground Railroad. Okay, no, that's not what I thought it was. Off my list. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck were you thinking? I'll tell you later. (laughs) Because it might be on there. It might be. Well, no, it wasn't. So this is a miniseries. Okay, go on. Yes. And like all miniseries, there are some peaks and valleys and what really works for you. They don't all operate at the highest of levels. But the cumulative experience is, I think, as essential to understanding the fabric of America as anything released this year. So Jenkins is taking Colson Whitehead's novel and he turns it into this sublime, horrific, and somehow even magical 10-part, 10-hour event. I saw this in quarantine in Montreal while I was waiting to get out of a hotel and onto my job earlier this year. And I saw it in the span of three or four days. Ryan, I should have spaced it out a little more. <laughs> I, can already, uh, I can already tell you probably should have. Yeah, I would have told you that. That being said, it's so comforting to know that there are still American filmmakers out there that are this good and taking these kinds of leaps into the deepest of our national wounds at a time at which I think we really need to be reminded about where we came from more than ever. If we have any semblance of hope actually moving forward. 
so the first episode has <laughs> said episode ha- has violence in it that is so brutal and so extreme i think that it took people out right away people that tried to get into it but it's a shame because the rest of it as it grows it expands it deepens and i think really ultimately enlightens i think it's actually a major statement from jenkins here in the first episode there's a pov shot that not unlike our discussion a few years ago in beale street Mm -hmm. when the I think it's when it's Fawny who's looking at the cop in a POV yeah. in a convenience store, which I don't think I'd ever been seen before that perspective in cinema. There's another POV here that is so horrifying that it, it it's it's somehow horrifying and vital simultaneously. I think it needed to be done, and I wasn't even quite ready for it when it happened. But I am happy that Jenkins went there, and that's all I'll say. Of, all say about that so the center the center of this epic piece rests on a woman of very small stature a character named cora played wonderfully by south african actress thuso Badu. i'm sorry she has an uncanny way of expressing what she's experiencing on her face which can take the form of kind of a quiet stoicism and can also just be this monstrous eruption and some of what you think is in the series is definitely in the series and it's tough to watch, but also I think a lot of what you don't think. So he uses Jenkins that some awesome touches of magical realism to, to offer both, I think an alternative to history and to highlight what he thinks has been forgotten from this period. And that's namely the stories of all the oppressed people that it touches. So I I think what he's getting at, opinions will vary but he's getting that we cannot really truly move forward with the american story until we acknowledge and concretize the stories of those of the past and not all those stories can unfortunately be known anymore they're either lost in plantations or backwoods swamps but they're as much the color of the american identity as anything else and i think this series really does attempt to correct that air and as gut-wrenching as it is it's fantastic yeah okay that's not what i kind of thought it would be but um it's definitely something that uh has been on the list to see there's just there's too much stuff man and and a lot of it's kind of good actually too much stuff (laughs) you know i mean i i i I get the idea i mean i want filmmakers like barry jenkins to do stuff you know like i'm happy that that he's able to to have an outlet to be able to make a story as widespread and is with, with as much breath as this one this uh, was does. as much cinema as anything else you'll see yeah and the the format be damned right it's a 10 mm-hmm. yeah it's like a i mean it's a 10 hour mini series movie you know it's, it is i get it I, I i have no problem with it because i'll tell you why at the end i'll tell you <laughs> why when we get to my number one why <laughs> i don't have a problem with it uh so stay tuned for that <laughs> that's what you call a tease my friends uh um, what's your number three right so I know. <laughs> Wait, was your number three Barb and Star? No, was, number four. Was that was Barb okay, and Star. Yes. Yeah. So we are on my number, You're number three. three. So my number three, and thinking about it, number three has kind of had some troubled history between you and I. Book Smart, number three. And I think we're definitely going to disagree on this one because I am a hashtag basic bitch when it comes to film. And I <laughs> realize that. I know I have like the flair. Can you promote this show with hashtag basic bitch? For sure. Thank you. I will throw that hashtag on there. Thanks. But I, I think it's like I have to understand who I am. And I think that liking 
a film like my number three film, which is Licorice Pizza, makes me a basic bitch. And I get that. I don't think it does. I think it kind of does. What, what, do you, what do you mean What by I that? mean by that is that, like, oh, of course a Paul Thomas Anderson movie is going to be in there. You know, it's like everybody fucking likes Paul Thomas Anderson and stuff. And and maybe it's like maybe it's kind of a difference between you're either in it or you're not. But I think that I'm just kind of slowly realizing as a film goer that I <laughs> Uh, I don't like to be challenged as much as I maybe had in the past or maybe that I told myself that I had that I liked that or or like I told myself that I liked it earlier on because I wanted to sound cool or I people knew I went to school for film and so they kind of expected this me to act a specific way and oh I'm supposed to you know I'm supposed to go crazy over upstream color and I'm supposed to like you know like these movies that are a little bit more a little bit more difficult to grasp, I think, because but of the. How f- are you applying that to this movie, though? I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I feel like, of course, a person who likes films is going to have, you know, like you accept it. You're the exception, I guess. But like, yeah, I think feel like this is a movie that's going to land on a lot of oh, yeah. year end lists and oh, yeah. like, you know, um, I'm, I'm against, I'm you, against the grain on this one this year. I yeah, <laughs> and like, I fully just, acknowledge that. You know, oh, nothing. It's just, you know, <laughs> one of our greatest living filmmakers <laughs> taking you along for the ride of a tour of his youth. Um, but I feel like it's just an all around great time. I mean, that's kind of what you come out of it. It's a hangout movie. It's one that's kind of best served, just kind of letting your inhibitions go. And I, th- I don't know if maybe people realize that going in, but I kind of got the little bit of a tip off that, it's a kind of it, it, it's in the same vein as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is I think a movie that it's compared to a lot. I would say because it has this sort of meandering. You mentioned that it's so mm-hmm. funny that you mentioned it kind of as a negative. Yeah. I mentioned it as a positive. Well, here's <laughs> the thing: I don't dislike that because Days and Confused is one of my top ten sure. favorite films of all time. One hundred percent. And something about that approach, mm-hmm. I just did not find here but no but yeah a lot of most people love this movie sure. so tell me why you do so i think that i mean in a, in a, in a master stroke that only paul thomas anderson can do he casts two first-time actors and trusts them to carry this now oscar-nominated material that he's written i mean it's a that's a bold move i even remember seeing actually when we saw we were talking about it earlier we saw i saw terminator 2 at the new beverly and part of the draw to go see that movie at the New Beverly was because they were the only ones that had the trailer for Licorice Pizza. Mm. They were the only, it was not online. It was literally at this theater. Any screening you saw for like two weeks before it actually came out. So I was like, cool, I'd love to see that. And I can remember thinking like, wow, this looks interesting. And then going, who the fuck are these people? Like, who is Cooper Hoffman? Who is Alana? He- you know, I'm not as cool as I pretend to be on this podcast. <laughs> But I've never listened to a Heim song in my life. Like, I know that they exist and I know that they're like very much online. And I know that Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I know about them. I don't know who they are. I wouldn't be able to recognize them in a lineup or something. But I mean, but Cooper Hoffman, like when you find out that, oh, this is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, you're like, okay, that makes a lot of sense for why he's in this and how good he is in this movie, frankly. I mean, but. The real star is Alana Heim. I mean, she's great. She's great. Not, she, she is great. But it's just crazy that she's not even really considered like the lead of her band. You know, like she's just kind of Alana in the background, essentially. But um, it's I did find it fun and cool that 
both of her sisters are in the film, as mm-hmm. well as the parents are also her parents. <laughs> both her parents. sisters were in the Q and A when I saw it. Oh, too. is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, screaming at her while she was That's in the chair next so to BTA. Funny, really? And she was just like screaming jeers right back at them. <laughs> That's great. Four, four rows behind me. That's great. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Oh, okay. They weren't even on stage. No. That's nice. <laughs> but uh, but she does shine. I think as Alana, a 25 year old woman who's having a hard time kind of finding her place in life, which kind of feels like an evergreen problem that all 25 year olds have. Hell, mm-hmm. fucking 35 year olds can have that too. Mm-hmm. But she finds solace in Hoffman's Gary, a slick talking high schooler, a, a little acting career on the side, but a mind for business. Kind of a really. hustler. A bit a of a, bit. a bit of a hustler swindler kind of guy, you know, make the sale, do whatever you need to do. But he's got the slick. He honestly, when he was uh, opening that mattress store, the the uh, the waterbed store, like when he was wearing that suit and the way that he wore his hair, I just wanted him to just be like, shut, 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 <laughs> shut, 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 shut up. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. So he, Paul Thomas Anderson, is asking you to kind of go along for the ride. You know, like I said earlier, he's just kind of taking you, you know, get taken for a ride. Let just, just put your, let him put yourself in his capable hands in this summer in the life, not even a day in the life, just like a summer in the life kind of film weaving his way through these colorful characters, zany hijinks. Oh, getting, you know, like wrongfully accused for murder is fun. Uh, but of course it all kind of takes on this Tarantino-esque attention to detail. There's a lot of similarities, obviously I mentioned between that film and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but the amount of effort that went into recreating a very specific time in his life, just mainly from his brain, I'm sure was like, Oh, this was probably here. This was probably here. This was probably here. And then being able to, you know, recreate all that with painstaking detail, I'm sure uh, was no small feat for the production design team and the costume team and everything. Um, I really hope he wins this year. I really hope he wins the, I think that's kind of a, it's, you know, again, not something, it's a sort of a Scorsese thing where you're like, I'm just glad he has one. He probably should have won three other times before this. Um, I, I obviously, it has its warts. It has its faults. Uh, I don't really know what was going on with the, uh, um, uh, the John Michael Higgins character, Mm -hmm. the Asian character. Like I just, I don't. I feel like if you remove that part, the Asian voice. I feel like if you removed it, nothing would change. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it was and, pretty fucking funny, though. We gotta admit I, that. See, as white guys, we could say that. No, but <laughs> no, no, but, no, no. I guarantee I, you, everybody was laughing at that move. That that shit. Yeah. I. And, and I if mean, they it, weren't, I don't want to be friends with them. To be fair honest. Enough, fair enough. <laughs> Oh, is your friend Joe Rogan on the phone or what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I mean, again, it's, you know, I am not smart enough or capable enough to uh, kind of unpack the Gary Alana relationship. I am taking it for what was on screen. Yeah, that was one of my biggest issues with the movie. And to, be, to clarify, I don't dislike this movie. I'm, I'm right in the middle of the road. Sure. Yeah, I don't dislike it, but Maybe it was. Maybe I need to reassess it, what a three and a half star means for you. It, it, no, th- three stars. <laughs> three stars. Three stars. Okay, sorry, it, sorry. It, it was their relationship is a sticking point because I think if they would have kept it, where okay, sometimes you just meet people in your life that have effects on you for various reasons, and you there's a push and pull there. They kind of come into your life, they go out of your life. If they kind of would have left it there, I think I would have been okay with it. But where the movie ends, I think puts a fine point on where it was all going and that is what absolutely didn't connect with me okay at all 
Yeah, I guess that they each are are finding deficient, not deficiencies, but they're kind of finding things about that they want in themselves in other people. So I think that Gary is very confident. He is he knows his place in the world. I think Alana has a good family life. She's also older. I think that uh, so I think that they both fill each other fill the gaps in each other's lives. You can't see me. I'm doing a tenant move. Uh, <laughs> but like I think she feels honestly like she belongs cuz she tries to go and have a film career for herself. She tries to go and work for these other, you know, for a, a, a political candidate. And it never, she doesn't really, it doesn't really fulfill her doing things that adults do, quote unquote adults. Like she kind of, maybe she's in a state of arrested development or something. And maybe she needs to, you know, do you think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his fucking 15 year old friends all the time? I think it's a little weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15 year old friends all the time. So, you know, but she kind of runs around thinking that all this other stuff is what she wants and maybe what she is supposed to want. But all of her travels, they always lead back to Gary. I mean, it's going to, you know, the, the line, the, you know, I'm never going to forget you. Right. It's (laughs) like, it's the the way that he has that so earnestly Mm -hmm. that only a 15 year old can prefer like somewhat a 15 year old character could deliver that kind of line. So, but I really liked where he took us. I mean, there was some thrilling moments I mean the the reverse that whole section thing. with Bradley Cooper ah, was some of the most consistent and sustained brilliance all year. Yeah. But that section, I think I I put it when I tried to write about it, hits the center the center of the bullseye for me. Sure. Like if the whole movie would have been something approximating that, yeah, we're talking masterpiece territory for yeah. me. Yeah. But I think that it's good that it is just the one section because it is just a portion that you can just kind of take out and you know we'll, we'll see it probably on a youtube you could just watch that section on youtube probably in the next like five years but um yeah but yeah i mean there's it, it, everybody's kind of comes in and out of their life you know and 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 so i really like the the where it went and the journey that it took us on um and uh yeah, yeah. licorice pizza number three i do want to rewatch it to see so if, I, I. if i if i pick up on things that just flew by me for whatever reason the first time watching it yeah i think it's the meandering quality of it that i just didn't click with it's kind of it's very episodic it's almost like fragments of memory that he's throwing on screen these these little these little nuggets here and there mm-hmm. of of a lived life and it just did not gel for me the way i think it did for most people which is just my sure. sub- subjective reading sure. but i really do want to give it another shot though but i think maybe when you watch it again knowing where their relationship ends maybe you're not kind of thinking ahead and trying to like piece it together like what could be happening you know you kind of know that the story you kind of know it's laid out for yeah, you but it's just the, the end is my problem <laughs> no but I, no, but I, I don't yeah. mean the literal end i mean yeah. like you're already in your mind trying to piece it together when you're watching it for the first time mm-hmm. where could this be leading but now that you kind of know where it's leading you don't really have to worry about putting that it's kind of like you know i feel like maybe i yeah. like films when i watch them a second time more overall, I think, just because you have a sense of I'm not trying to follow the story so you know so strictly. But yeah, so yeah, all right, silver and gold, my friend, silver and gold, and will never be more true on my list this year that analogy. So here we go. Okay, so number two, I literally decided on these this morning. Yeah, as I said, and croissant and coffee. It will live on in our podcast lore as something either truly pathetic or groundbreaking only time will tell 
So my number two is Drive My Car by Raisuki Hamaguchi. And this has picked up a good head of steam in the awards season. I think it was nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It won Best Screenplay. It's now been nominated for four Oscars, including Picture, Director, some of the marquee ones. And that's some solace where I know it's not just going to fade into obscurity. But this is a three-hour epic about grief, which sounds rough. <laughs> Until you've actually seen it, I think, and been floored, I think, but it has a very soft power to it then that description sounds just about right. So synopsis, canned. It's about a stage director that is directing an adaptation of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, something I had zero familiarity with walking in. I honestly thought he wrote it. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. I've heard it's a notoriously difficult play to actually adapt correctly for whatever reason. They're just kind of this mysterious, vague lock that kind of keeps it away from most people taking a stab at it. But anyway, so this stage director, he's reeling from a personal tragedy involving his wife and marital infidelity. This director is driven to and from work every day by a professional driver hired by the company he's working for. And she ends up kind of being her own little riddle box of past wounds and and trauma. And I think the genius of the Uncle Vanya part is it's not he's not making uncle Vanya he's framing his story around it. And that device kind of allows for an emotional arc to be experienced, not just by the main character, but also the peripheral characters. They're kind of living through and growing with the themes of that play while the movie goes on, which is a really cool way to do it. So the interplay between the two main characters, the driver is not even introduced until the hour mark (laughs) in, in the movie. Their t- how their tandem unfolds, I think, is some of the best that movies can offer that have corollaries with novels. It's like a novelistic touch that most movies at shorter lengths can't pull off. And I think it's a, at its core, it's about how art can affect people, both people that are very familiar with it and people that are experiencing it for the first time. So, again, it's a three-hour film, and I think the privilege of meeting the film at its length is you're you allow yourself to kind of to be subjected to the same heartache and then breakthroughs of the characters on screen whenever they're fortunate enough to to happen and it all just feels lived in and earned while you're experiencing it because it has just been this ride so the opening credits don't appear until 40 minutes into this movie (laughs) and i love that iconoclasm yeah. there i mean it's it's almost sh- forget that they're it's, there. it's <laughs> i haven't it's, seen them yet <laughs> it's kind of showy but so that 40 minutes kind of functions essentially as a prologue to inform what happens in the rest of the two hour and 20 minutes you're about to experience and i love that he included it because the movie a just would not be the same without it and b he could have just done this in flashbacks or with a few lines of dialogue here and there but no he's like i'm gonna put it on screen it is important for what follows and everyone should have that grounding. This was a very gorgeous and moving experience. I thought that is rightfully being lauded by people who unbelievably get paid to watch and write about movies. Who are these fucking people? How do I get that job? Thank God. Some movies landed on screen this year that really are trying to provoke, uh, provoke and understand, explore the human condition in this kind of mature way. Just cheers flat out to drive my car. And, it would not be a proper review of this film if I didn't end the review with the obligatory 
beep, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. All I could sing when all I could think about. I know it's like it's a kind of a shame, really. It's sort of like oh boy, I, I was just like, baby, you can drive my drive my car is my yeah. number two. Okay, we just saw this two nights ago. Mm. Um, Interesting. Okay, I I didn't know what to expect going in. I just knew it was like everybody fucking loves this movie, and I had a hard time with it. I had a hard time wrapping my arms around it because I couldn't really figure out what it was trying to be not in like a bad way maybe i just wasn't really like understanding it but i was kind of like going through and i was like okay i see what we're doing here and i'm just kind of like but what what are we doing and i think you put a a good pinpoint on it like it's just a three-hour movie about grief Mm -hmm. like and because there's a lot of grief in this movie (laughs) there is some awful awful stories that get told about there's so many tender human moments though at the same time oh absolutely that just that lift it up yeah and the script is especially powerful. Um, Even in a foreign language. Yeah. It translates. There is, I mean, the the sequence with uh, Tatsuki and the, when essentially they're just driving him back to um, his hotel. But the story that he tells about Otto is like, holy shit. Like this is, but that sequence just, I mean, it, and essentially it is just, looking him just down the barrel of the camera each time and just telling the story to the main character, but also to us as well. And that's just a great performance because the entire time he's just kind of this sort of flippant, you know, he's just kind of like, ah, oh, this vacuous kind of guy who just, you know, has sex with women and yeah. wants to be a hot playboy essentially. But you're like, oh, this guy has some depth to him. But I really enjoyed the entire sequence of going to i'm trying I, i'm gonna mess up her is name. it the scene at the character's house yes where the family yes. and the the, the the dinner no oh. no oh, th- okay. that part's great too no, oh I, the, the the end scene yes yeah, I, okay. I think like towards the end when they um, when, when they go to her childhood yes, home yeah. exactly okay. yeah that that part of it i thought was very very powerful that's kind of the mm-hmm. you know the zenith of the whole thing yeah but, um but that uncle vanya like doing what he did with that is impressive like doing it on screen and whether he actually had the idea of seeing something like that where you just have all these different languages all coming together and and playing in was one was really great but um, yeah that's the thing is that i would need to kind of give it another pass but i don't want to have to spend (laughs) another three hours like in in the world yeah and in your defense i that is a very common uh, reaction to this movie i think there's the reaction i express and there's the reaction of well, I see what it's doing, but I don't get what I'm supposed to take from it. You know, so I think there's there's two very valid camps in approaching what this movie is, and they're very common, both of them. But I think that at the end of the day, you can kind of come out of it and go, well, it's at least it's very well done, and the script mm. is incredible, and the acting is really characterization good. is so yeah. Good. I mean, there there, there are the, you know, it, it it maybe wasn't as great as the sum of its parts for me mm-hmm. personally, but you still tell that it's it's made by a masterwork and it's yeah it's really good again three hours but yeah i mean you you don't really i don't want to say you necessarily feel the length but i think that um yeah well spent for me but it needed to be that it needed to be that long because you needed to have all the backstory and context to get to what you're getting later on Mm -hmm. uh well my number two is a movie that basically just kind of announces like welcome the fuck back to the goddamn movies and that's dune (laughs) Like, mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of this one, you're essentially just Ian Malcolm gazing upon the dinosaurs <laughs> that John Hammond has created, saying, you did it, you brilliant son of a bitch, you did it. So much hype, so much promise, 
so much anticipation and it all paid off brilliantly for me. Some of the most affecting use of IMAX this side of Christopher Nolan, you really do like feel like you're swinging around a warship on Arrakis. Like that's the first time when it was actually, you were like, wow, I feel like I'm moving with this thing. Um, but obviously the score is super memorable, but what's left to be said about Denis Villeneuve? I mean, the man can do it all. I think he's taken on two massive sci-fi properties in the last four years and made them both absolutely fly to heights that you didn't even think they were even capable of. Like Blade Runner 2049 made it on my decade list and it almost seems quaint by comparison <laughs> with this movie. Just the massive scale and just the size and, and just the sheer volume of it. Uh, you feel that sound in your teeth, you know? <laughs> like The sound design is next level. It's amazing. Yeah. I think even to its detriment sometimes because I did lose some dialogue in this movie by especially Rebecca Ferguson's character. Mm-hmm. Sometimes... Well, she kind of speaks in that softer. It, well, it, it's way. like a it's like a hush that's yeah. digitally altered. I think a bit, oh, but wow. I did lose some of her dialogue. But the sound design is immaculate. Yeah, and I, you know, reading about it and just knowing that he spent six months coming up with the the look of the the sandworms. Like it's just like yeah, this man puts in the work and it really shows. But I mean, it really just like. I'm not often, I'm often the type of person to just kind of let stuff slide majority of the time. But there was a person in my IMAX screening of Dune at the end of the row, four or five Mm, people down. I know where this is going. Just like, okay, the scene where Paul has his hand in the the pain box or whatever. The box, yeah. Yeah, don't take it out or you'll die, that sort of thing. It had just been leading up to that point, just little comments, little things you're talking to the screen. Vocalizing things. Vocalizing things, and it's just like, okay, like I'm just going to, I'm a nice guy, I'm going to let this be. But she's got, he's got the hand in the box. You know, it's a very tense scene. Pulls the hand out, and she just goes, this woman goes, oh, I would have done that differently. Or like, I would have like, like, man, I would have hit that woman. And, it's just, and I was like, excuse me, can you please stop talking, please? Thank you so much. Like, I had to just <laughs> nice. kind of, Good. you know, I had just like, and I was like, nobody is going to mess. What an insufferable wench. No one is going to mess with my dude. Like, nobody's going to mess with this. So I, I'm, I'm simultaneously, it just, and, and it kind of walking out of it and knowing that it had delivered to me on its massive promise of like, oh yeah, it's a Denis Villeneuve movie that cost him, you know, $200 million or whatever. And it's Dune and everything. Um, but I couldn't help but think like, man, this is what I was missing in 2020. I mean, there's nothing else you can say. It's just like this movie, like, like I said, sound, you can feel in your teeth, beautiful IMAX, beautiful visual effects. I mean, it's just like, this is, this is what it is. This is the movie. Yeah. This was the first movie. So I saw this late October and this was the first movie I saw in a theater since the Invisible Man, woof, January of 2020. Mm-hmm. So, welcome back to the movies is fucking right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one to start on. That's I a really a good one to start. I like this film. It it did, actually did not make my list, but I really like. Yeah. The, I really like this film, and the craft of Villeneuve is just a level. Mm-hmm. It's a list. I mean, anything he does is a first weekend event now, and I will the. Uh, before I tell you one slight reservation I had with it, the cat, the, the ticking clock 
uh, desert sandworm scene that is kind of one of the center showpieces of the movie is perfect. I mean, the way they establish stakes, the way they set you up with dialogue that you don't even know is setting you up for an action scene, but that's exactly what they're doing and it pays off as soon as the scene starts. And just the idea of this thing coming from a great distance away to where the characters are and how perfectly that is staged and timed just could not stop smiling. Like that is that is masterful filmmaking. It's great. Great. Yeah. The one thing that kept me from embracing this with five-star letterbox arms <laughs> is it has a lot of prequelitis to me where I think this movie what it accomplishes most is making me want to see the second movie. <laughs> and I get that for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and it, a lot of that is there, I think. I think it's all about the story to come. And by the time it ends, you're kind of just like I want that movie now. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, we all so want that movie. We all want that reasons, movie. Though. And <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. th- I don't think that the, you know, he's dealing with source material. I, sure. I totally get that. And apparently it's the most faithful, the source material that's ever been adapted, but it was a cliffhanger, but not necessarily in a great way for me. Cause I wanted more out of this movie before the grand finale to come, you know, but small quibbles, Love the movie. Yeah, nothing about this movie is that's the quibbles are the smallest thing about Qu- this quibbles. Movie. That's <laughs> it. Just fine granular quibbles, yeah. <laughs> almost like spice. French press quibbles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Okay. We come down to it. And number one film what of twenty twenty one. So Ryan, I said at the top yeah. of this show that my list would be a little stranger than most, and this is kind of where that pays off. So I had a television show at number three. I had a three-hour Japanese film at number two. I'm so nervous. Okay. So my number one film of the year is by the same director as my number two film of the year. (laughs) Oh. Okay. I don't know if you you might have not heard of this film, and I only heard of it because I love Drive My Car so much. But my number one film of the year is called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, also by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. And it is a crying shame that this movie did not get any more press. I think his other movie kind of overshadowed it. And it's honestly just a coin toss between these two because I love what both of their doing so much. Why did I prefer this to drive my car? I don't really know, (laughs) but that's where it's landing right now. So the film tells a triptych of separate stories. They're all centering on female longing, jealousy and regret. It's a two-hour and change movie that, in nary a moment of it, is spent on something other than two human beings talking to each other. Mm. So if that, sounds, if that sounds boring to anyone, it, it's probably been a while since you've heard dialogue this good. Or read it, I guess. I don't, I don't speak Japanese. but <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> the first story is called Magic or Something Less Assuring. So it centers on a young model who has a long conversation in a car again (laughs) wow a theme played out by the other movie she has a conversation with the director on one of her modeling shoots the director tells her that a man she's just met how it might have be the encounter that changes her life the model played by katoni furukawa realizes that she's talking about one of her current flames so the conversation that follows between the model and the man in both of these women's lives is a long-winded jagged 
evocative and I think goes through its own little mini arc within the story itself, which I always love when it's that obvious where all the cards are laid on the table and the future is written out between all these three characters. It's an awesome story that kind of centers on the friction between the sickening jealousy that can come with heartache when you know that something that's been a big part of your life is about to end. And it's natural friction with what you know, like in your heart is the best for everybody. And so that's where this first story kind of makes its mark. Um, Brilliant way to open the film. Second film is called Door Wide Open. And this contains some of the steamiest dialogue driving a sequence <laughs> since... Have you ever seen Persona? The in, in, no. Ingmar oh, Bergman no. I film? was supposed to have watched it like years ago in a film class and I didn't. It's like... Story the, of my life. It's the, mo- <laughs> it's the most steamy since I think one pivotal scene in that movie, which considering the decade it was made is still just a force of human nature. But so it centers on this pretty college student who's looking to take advantage of one of her past, her past professors who has just come into some kind of renown for a popular book he's written and all the accolades that come with that. And the way she tries to take advantage of him and her motives, I'll kind of leave to people who haven't seen it, but oh my God, the sexual tension (laughs) in, in this scene. Wow. Like my mind was spinning for fucking days after watching this. And there's a coda that's a little more tragic comic or just plain tragic, depending on how you view it. But there's so much to take in here about the power balance in relationships, the swaying power balance, and how there's a risk that comes when comes with deploying these these weapons we all have at our disposal before we properly understand them. So a little bit different of a vibe in the second story, but just as great. And the final story is called Once Again. This is kind of easily the lightest and I would say the least consequential of all three. But it also has the strangest psychological tug out of all of them. And so it centers on a high school reunion and a case of mistaken identity between two women. And through these two central characters who end up putting on kind of a performance within a performance in the story, there's like a role-playing aspect to it. Uh Hamaguchi he just examines like this regret this yearning unfulfillment unrequited love in just bittersweet but really profound ways and I mean this is my number one film of the year because it's just incredibly insightful it's extremely well written it has very interesting things to say about kind of the shapeless emotional mass that we call whatever this fucked up human condition is we're all saddled with Mm -hmm. so I guess what can I say? This is the year of Ryusuke Hamaguchi Man, for me. Man, wow. <laughs> Both films on my list. I and can't that, believe it. That back is not back. a calculation on my part. These are legitimately the two films I like the most this wow. year. that's pretty amazing. And I can't believe that actually happened. I mean, that, it's amazing that, that they even got made in the same year and released yeah. and everything and so that they, they could be. Yeah. yeah. Highly recommend people seeking both of these films out. Wow. Okay. Well, that wasn't where I thought you were going to go. You were right. Where'd you think I was going? Okay, well, I'll tell you, because I I thought this one would end up, so I guess we alluded to it a little bit about a little bit earlier uh, about what kind of year this was, and generally, I, I don't know if I if it stacks up well with, I think, other years, maybe in the past five or six or so, um, still has a, you know, pretty solid crop of films, I think, 
Um, but I was having a hard time figuring out what my number one movie was. Oddly enough. Likewise. I was just kind of like, ah, there was stuff I'm seeing. There wasn't an obvious one. No, there wasn't something where you kind of, you felt it. There wasn't a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or a Parasite in my case. Whiplash, you know, like something like that. Something Arrival. Yeah, like just something that kind of like really gets you. Um, So for a long time, my number one movie of the year, and it's not this because uh, I was talked out of it. But for a really long time, my number one movie of the year was Inside by Bo Burnham. Oh, it's good, man. So I, it's really it's good. It's not that, but but yeah. I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're running long. This might be have to break it up into two episodes. I don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. Inside by Bo Burnham needs its own kind of conversation, I think, because mm-hmm. there is no greater piece of pandemic art, specifically about the experience of living through this pandemic, than Inside. Um, if you look at our Spotify Wrapped for the year. It is just littered with those songs. It is, you know, uh, that funny feeling, uh, you know, sexting, white woman's Instagram. Like, it sounds ridiculous when I'm saying it, but the humanity that he expresses and just sort of where we all were in March of 2020, which is we'll be back in a few weeks. We'll be back to work in a few weeks. We'll be back in the office. We're working from home for a little bit. And oh, okay. This Two week hiatus. Yeah. Where I, whatever. Oh, you know, great. I bought some toilet paper. We'll be fine for a little bit. And then it's just like, as his beard and his hair starts to grow, that's sort of how we all felt really. I mean, there's a shared communal experience worldwide that, I mean, unlike it's once a century, when everybody has the same experience. I had it, someone who living in another state, someone who lives in another country, someone who lives in the other continent, all felt this way. And I feel like it's all encapsulated, all of those feelings and all of the angst and just, you know, Robert's been a little depressed, you know? Like that, that is just so resonant that there's really no other piece of art that really captures what it is like to live in this world today. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there was madness in that movie, but there was a lot of truth to go right along with it. Yeah. No, there really was. And I think that because every, every emotion is had in that film, I wasn't sure about it because it's a comedy special. You know, it's on Netflix. Quote, unquote. I mean, it is. You know, I mean, that's th- that was the intent, I feel like. You know, it wasn't an, it wasn't ever meant to be released in theaters. Not that it needs to be to make it. But, yeah, like, just the... the I, I, I ultimately was talked out of it. Yeah. I, I'm talked out of it. I mean, I ultimately saw my number one movie of the year. Is it kind of just, like, on a different plane for you a little bit? I, I just don't know if it's a film. <laughs> you know, and I think that that, that Netflix blurs those lines a little bit and i think that it is tough to know which is which with them because you're watching it on tv but it is a movie but it's a comedy special but it's this it it, you know it it doesn't follow a three-act structure the way that a normal film was and and you know obviously film is changing and those types of things uh different things are happening with it but ultimately it wasn't my number one movie of the year yeah i have no idea where you're going with this because i saw the worst person in the world. Oh, I haven't seen this yet. Ugh. It's the Al Pacino meme. The what a picture. <laughs> I mean, 
and I, honestly, I just saw this at Virtual Sundance like two weeks ago. Okay. So it, I mean, it obviously knocked my socks completely off, really walloped me. So at its heart, the director, Joachim Trier, has said it's a rom-com for people who hate rom-coms. But, so I think that that's kind of where it is a little bit, it, what, what it's trying to accomplish. But what really grabbed me was the main character whose performance has just been lauded, you know, Renate Reinsve. Uh, her depiction of a 30-ish year old millennial Julie, that's her name. It's one of the first films I can really remember seeing depicting our generation's struggles. Okay. With settling, you know? She, the, the film opens and she is studying to be a medical student and decides that she doesn't like doing surgery or it's, it feels too much like carpentry. So she doesn't want to, to be a part of that. She goes and says, oh, I'm going to be a, a psychology major. Doesn't really jive with her. So she becomes a photographer. You know, like she's just kind of jumping from study to study. She has a degree, but she works in a bookstore relatable <laughs> right her boyfriend axel who's played that's how i moved to la exactly that's what i mean yeah <laughs> her boyfriend axel is who's played brilliantly by anders danielson lee who's been in yokum true's other films as well and has kind of grown up with the filmmaker uh, he's older than her in his 40s and tells her when they first meet this is we just break up now like this is not going to end well but he so he's a successful subversive comic book a comic strip artist so she encounters other people his age, and this is another film that's actually broken up into chapters based on, uh, and they're named after lines of dialogue in that particular section. Um, but she encounters other people in her 40s, and they all have nice homes and kids, and they're having the conversation, oh, should we have kids and everything like that, and it's just, it was just like, oh my God. But her life doesn't really have traction. She has dreams and an education and has followed this roadmap to be successful that she and we, you and I, were told about growing up. Go to college, get a degree, go into a field. A little, bit of, a little bit of fight club and Polanuk in her. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't matter. You just <laughs> sort of go, you know, that, that's what I was told. And I, because I think that, that those were the lived experiences of, you know, my, my family. And uh, yeah, you just, you, you grow up, you go to school into college you go into work you buy a house you go all this thing it's just like the that worked for so long for you know 50 years or so and that's just not the case now you can't really the economy has changed a little it's bit a hasn't slightly it slightly different than maybe it was back in those days back in the, the opportunities are a little right. bit different and diversified and uh, specialized so, now so so i think that the, that aspect of it is what really resonated with me and really just made the film sing because mm -hmm. I had never seen that. I had never seen a film where a, a person who's around my age is kind of like struggling with identity or struggling with the idea of should I have a kid or should I do this or should I, you know, can I even buy a house? Can I afford to do this? And this is in like Denmark where it's, you know, much more socially liberal and much more, you know, the government helps you out way more, I think, than it does in other places in the world. But essentially so um there's a particularly fabulous scene in one of the other chapters where julie leaves a party honoring axel's work and she 
crashes a wedding on the way home. And she's walking home, and there's a wedding, and she decides to kind of go in. She meets a man, and they engage in a strict, non-cheating behavior while just barely towing the line between what's acceptable and what's not. Um, but really, it's able to kind of switch genres and feelings so masterfully. Like, it does have that rom-com for people who hate rom-coms aspect of it. But as her life, Julie's life, kind of continues down its path, she sees wonder in the world and floats from feeling to feeling, almost like she kind of did with her degree choices. So when it's funny, it's hilarious. When it's sweet, you fall in love with it. And when it's serious, it's honestly some of the best drama on screen in 2021. Mm. So it's wonderful, sweet, relatable, dramatic, all at the same time. Uh, I really want to see it again. I'm glad that it's now coming to theaters. I, I, you know, cause I watched it at home, but it's in a few theaters now. And uh, I know I'm not the only one. I know people have really been enjoying it, but it really kind of hit me uh, in a way that I, A, wasn't expecting, and B, had not seen before. So the worst person in the world. Eloquently said and defended, it's just vaulted up to the top of my must-see list awesome. for this year. So cool. Nice work. Absolutely. Wow. That was it. Kind of an epic show. It really but was. We really haven't... We needed, I mean, to, we needed it. We That's need, what I think. It was cathartic. We needed to really dive into the weeds on Agreed. this year. Yeah, we needed to really get into it. We needed to, to hash it out. We talked about. We need to talk about it. I mean, you were you were gone for so long. I, we were out of contact mm. for so long. I mean, yeah. People think you know things were going on, but you know, I, I I don't mind. I used to I used to want to be like tighten it, just tight. Alan Tudyk and knocked up, just tighten. But now it's just like this is a this is a conversation. This is what we're doing. You know, like this is it what is, we yeah. love and. And I'm not going to try to apologize or try to cut myself short because of it. So, so because this is likely two parts. Yeah. Are there any other films that you like this year for honorable mentions oh that you can think gosh. of? Um, man, I let me see. Hang on. You, you, you talk. Let me look up. So I liked Lamb in a really weird way that surprised me. Well, did I like it? I don't know, but I like what it's doing. I'll put it that way. I liked Nobody. I thought that was a refreshingly brutal spin on the John Wickerverse that we typically get now. I liked Benedetta, Paul Verhoeven's insane lesbian nun drama. Yeah, it's on the list to see. <laughs> that yeah. movie is fucked. Serrano? Cyrano? I think you has had Cyrano. Cyrano? Yeah. yeah. The first 30 to 45 minutes of that thing were some of the most entertaining shit I saw all year. The rest of the movie doesn't live up to it, but it is really fun when it starts. Nice. The Lost Daughter... I like Maggie Gyllenhaal's debut. Mm -hmm. Some really uncomfortable stuff there that she wrings good drama out of. The Velvet Underground, Todd Haynes' first documentary of his career, was a really fun and formalistically bold approach to documentary material around a legendary band. Let's see, a lot of them we've already mentioned. Yeah, a lot of the ones on here. The one thing, I, I a couple I will point out. Well, one mainly. Um, I think that's all, all, it's all I'll give right now. Another comedy that I feel like kind of got... I think it got some butt. Uh, Werewolves Within. Have you seen that one? No. You heard of it? No. Okay. Based on a video game, but it's with uh, Sam Richardson, uh, who's in The After Party on Apple TV Plus. He was on uh, I Think You Should Leave and Milana Weintraub, everybody's favorite. Lily from AT&T commercials. Ah, uh, yes, Lily. Yes, we love Lily. Uh, it was a very, very fun. It's the guy who did um, Scare Me. I don't know if you've heard of that one either. No. Josh Chastman. I think. No, yeah, you're yeah. stumping me. Okay. Um and uh, I actually really enjoyed the Suicide Squad, too. I liked it, too. James yeah. Gunn. <laughs> I mean, the guy can just, you know, he can really, really 
it is fun seeing him stretch his legs into R-rated territory yeah. because he was kind of confined over at uh, Marvel, Disney and Marvel, yeah. and this is what he kind of really wants to do, I yeah. think, and it showed. Yeah. So, and uh, we talked about House of Gucci again. It's it's a memorable film in the sense that it's just ridiculous and kind of crazy. But I wouldn't say it's like a great film, but it's something that it's a it's it, it's an enjoyable watch and another obviously really good Adam Driver performance, but. Um, but yeah, I'm happy with my list. I would have, uh, I, I would have been happy with, if I hadn't seen worst person, I would have been, you know, I probably would have uh, forced my way to put inside on there, but I'm glad we got to talk about it. Cause I think it's still a really important piece of filmmaking in, uh, in this world. So yeah, it is. I'm happy you mentioned it. I loved it. I saw it when it came out and it did need some talk because it just could not be a more relevant portrait yeah. of where a lot of us were. And I'm sure many of us still are. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, where can people uh, find your stuff? You're 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 like uh you're like Mr. Letterbox now, aren't you? I love Letterbox, and no, they don't pay me anything. <laughs> I love writing reviews to everything I watch. I log everything I watch. I think I just crossed the the 600 review mark, which for me, with as little fucking time as yeah. I have lately, is a medal that I'll take at this point in my life. And yeah, that's where all my stuff is. I log everything I see religiously. So do you have a name? Is just search for your name? Clay yeah, it's Shank, or is it just? I think Clay R Shank is okay. my handle. Yeah. on Letterbox. Very, very good. Uh, that's actually, honestly, one of the only reasons I go on Facebook anymore is to see your reviews on. on oh, I appreciate stuff. that. Yeah, no, I, Thanks, I'm, man. I'm always sort of looking out for, because you know it's my way to sort of have a, to connect with you with films because we're we, not doing this right because we do live far from each other we don't often get to do things see films together like was uncut gems the last thing we saw <laughs> maybe and that was even kind of uh, yeah that was so. even i think kind of like a, a one-off even but uh, but we used to go all the time so it's like that that feels like my way so his stuff's really well written and uh i think uh it's worth checking out i don't have a letterbox i should probably start just so i can at least start logging stuff that i that i see but um but yeah you can find uh more stuff about mccarran podcast network we're on instagram at mce podnet i made it easy so you don't have to spell out the whole thing uh and um i'm happy we got to do this man i'm really excited yeah to, uh, that this was a lot of fun. Until next year, my friend. Absolutely. Bye.